This episode of Halloween Unmasked is brought to you from our friends at Shudder. And as you know, Shudder is a premium video streaming service with the largest human-curated selection of dangerous entertainment. In short, Shudder is what you want to be subscribing to if you are a horror geek. And if you're listening to this show, I think you're at least kind of interested in all things spooky. Right now on Shudder, they got three of the Halloween films for you. They got Halloween 78, they got Halloween 4, and they got Halloween 5. And you can watch all of them right now for just $4.99 a month or $49 a year, which if you're doing the math on $4.99 a month, that is cheaper than renting them all individually. And actually, get this, you can even try Shudder for free for 14 days if you go to Shudder.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. That's Shudder.com slash podcast. Use UNMASKED. Get creepy with us. Enjoy getting spooky. You know what? Uh, honestly, you have three characters of girls. You have a smart aleck. You have a cheerleader. And you have the repressed virgin. Jamie Lee Curtis has her hand on my knee, and she's calling her character Laurie Strode a repressed virgin. Jamie Lee's hand is hot and she's kicked off her shoes and I'm a little nervous, but not as nervous as audiences were watching this scene in Halloween where Lori leaves her babysitting house to track down her smart aleck cheerleader friends. All day, Lori's been getting weird phone calls, but the last one from her friend Linda has her spooked. It sounded like Linda was having sex with her boyfriend Bob, but then the squeals stopped. So Lori's walking next door to find Linda and Bob and her other best friend Annie, but they're all dead. And we know they're all dead, and that Lori is walking right toward their killer, Michael Myers. Bob? Linda? And just like the killer in the opening shot of the movie, Lori turns away from the porch, goes around the side of the house, and into the back door. It's open, which is weird, but it's been a weird day. A little spooky. But Lori's still innocent. She thinks it's a prank. All right, you meatheads, joke's over. She's scared, sure, but her back is straight, and her voice is mad. She's scared and she's brave. She's Laurie Strode. Nothing bad has ever happened to her before. So she goes past the kitchen, through the living room, up that staircase, and into the upstairs bedroom. Annie's corpse is on the bed, splayed before Michael's sister's tombstone. Laurie gasps, but she muffles her mouth with her hands. She backs away whimpering quietly and... There's Bob, swinging upside down like a dead gymnast. And there's Linda, very, very dead in the closet. And now, Lori does what she's been fated to do. She screams. That is a great scream. A scream worthy of a royal nickname. Obviously, the term scream queen became associated to me because they were making a lot of horror movies and I was the star of them. True, because Jamie Lee is not just famous in horror circles for Halloween. After it came out, it started a slasher movie boom, and a lot of those copycats asked Jamie to star in them, too. She started a trend, and her characters created a template, the slasher movie final girl. So on this episode of Halloween Unmasked, hosted by me, hi, Amy Nicholson, we are going to worship at the altar of Scream Queens and Final Girls and Jamie Lee Curtis, the star who rules over both. What's the difference? Well, Scream Queens are all great horror actresses. Final Girls are a smaller subgroup, like distinguishing between all birds and flamingos. Final Girls exist only in slasher films, and the number one thing that makes them special is that they live. At least until the sequel. What makes Final Girls so safe? Well, they follow the slasher rules. I'll let Randy, the slasher film expert from the movie Scream, that 90s meta-film that hyper-analyzed all things horror, break down the three commandments, which he's doing right now as Halloween plays in the background. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. 
dead man. Sex equals death. Okay. Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin. It's an extension of number one. And number three, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say I'll be right back, because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Of course, when Jamie Lee Curtis played Laurie Strode, none of those rules were true yet. And she even broke one because Laurie Strode totally smokes weed. <laughs> Laurie, stop coughing! What's the matter with you? Still, Laurie Strode set the mold, and after her, slasher films copied this idea of having a sole, innocent girl who survives the horrors that kill off all of her friends. Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser, Friday the 13th, and hundreds of other films, all the way up to Nev Campbell in Scream, and today's new final girls like Micah Monroe from It Follows. Scream queens have a longer history. They go back as far as, well, like, audible screaming in movies. The first was Faye Ray. She was the star of the 1933 King Kong, one of the very first blockbuster thrillers of the sound era. In this scene we're about to hear, she's playing an actress named Anne, doing a screen test for a director who's kind of really the villain of the film even more than the giant ape. Listen to him direct her scream, a scream that is so good it echoes through movie history all the way to today. Now, Anne, in this one you're looking down. When I start to crank, you look up slowly. You're quite calm. You don't expect to see a thing. Then you just follow my directions. All right? Camera. Look up slowly, Ann. That's it. You don't see anything. Now look higher. Still higher. Now you see it. You're amazed. You can't believe it. Your eyes open wider. It's horrible, Ann, but you can't look away. There's no chance for you, Ann. No escape. You're helpless, Ann. Helpless. There's just one chance. If you can scream, but your throat's paralyzed. Try to scream, Anne. Cry. Perhaps if you didn't see it, you could scream. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, Anne. Scream for your life! We already know that John Carpenter is not the type to give that sort of complicated emotional direction. Instead, for Halloween, he just created a terror scale from 1 to 10, and he wrote the numbers right there on the pages of Jamie Lee Curtis's scripts that she knew how scared to act. From there, Jamie Lee was responsible for the screaming. So let's ask her about it. Is there a secret to a good scream? No. <laughs> Not at all? No. There's actually, there's zero prep. You don't know you're going to have to do it until you do it, and you have no idea what you're going to do. So Jamie Lee Curtis was a natural. She was born to scream, which makes sense because her mother is, after all, Psycho's Janet Lee. In that scream we heard at the start of this episode when Lori sees her murdered friends, John told her that scream was a 9.5. To do it, Jamie Lee pictured her mother in that bed, dead. Jamie Lee and Janet Lee were really close. Jamie Lee was only one year old when her mom shot Psycho. Back then, in the early 60s, Janet Lee was a huge star. She was this gorgeous blonde who'd been discovered at a ski resort and shipped to Hollywood, where she started romances and comedies and prairie stuff. She'd done the Lassie movie, and then one day Orson Welles cast her in Touch of Evil, this noir about an American woman who marries a Mexican cop. John Carpenter loved Touch of Evil's long opening tracking shot, which starts with this close-up of a time bomb in a car trunk, and then it zooms up across Tijuana to follow Janet Lee as she innocently walks right across the border to America right when the bomb explodes. 
So that's the Janet Lee shot that inspired Michael Myers' opening murder scene in Halloween. But most people only associate Janet Lee with Halloween because of Psycho, the role that made her eternal and crippled her career. Psycho was just too controversial. After Janet Lee got stabbed in the shower, no one wanted to see her be funny or fall in love or hang out with Lassie. Here's Alexander Heller Nicholas, the author of many fabulous books on women in horror movies, to explain. So even going beyond the horror stuff, you know, Psycho was doing stuff that just hadn't been done before in mainstream cinema. You know, it's the first time a lot of people saw a toilet in a film. It's the first time a lot of people saw a woman in a bra in a film. Um, so it was really, really pushing the boundaries and pushing those limits. And that must have had some impact on her career. I don't doubt that at all. Janet Lee's Scream Queen typecasting was so hard to shake that Jamie Lee inherited it. So absolutely, I think that Carpenter knew exactly what he was doing in continuing that legacy. But I certainly don't think that was the only thing that made Jamie Lee Curtis so important to Halloween. And I think that she herself has become her own legacy. I know your new book is called One Thousand Women in Horror. So where, where would you rank Jamie Lee Curtis in that giant group of women? She's the first photo in the book, if that helps. <laughs> Some people find the phrase scream queen demeaning, like it basically means terrible actress. Some people are very much against it. Others have really embraced it. Others have learnt to love it. Um, to me, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to use the term myself um, because I think there's an implication that the job is just about screaming. Although Jamie Lee liked the name. At the age I was, the idea of somebody giving you a nickname, having you be the queen of anything, was extraordinary. And secondly, as Alexandra points out, screaming is actually really hard. I know from myself, if I have a big cry or a big scream, I, I'm wrecked afterwards. You know what I mean? Like it's, you know, when we have big feelings, it weighs on us. Especially when you're channeling something almost unimaginable that none of us here right now have ever experienced. The moment of our own murder. That is the biggest emotion ever. And if you think you can pull it off, I dare you to tweet your best scream queen scream at me right now if you are very, very brave. Or if you're alone and shy, I dare you to give it your own private try. Because I did, and it really helped me get the hard work that Alexandra is describing. You know, the over-the-topness, especially of really low-budget horror, really is quite demanding, I think, on, on what the job actually entails for these, for these actors. When we're talking about horror in particular, in that there's these really excessive emotions on display and they, they're not easy, I think, for anybody to pull out of the hat. Think about the emotional arc of Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode. In one day, she goes from normal, innocent girl to trauma victim who's seen her friend's dead bodies and nearly died herself. In just one day, her life, the whole way she looks at the world, is changed. And slasher films offer young and experienced actresses something that almost no other genre does. The chance to star in a movie. In fact, even better than star, to be the major emotional arc. To play a range of emotions that don't exist in scripts where you're just some guy's young, hot girlfriend. That is why Jamie Lee said yes to Halloween. When I was 19 years old, I was fighting for two lines a week on a TV series. And so to have a script where every single page was this girl was extraordinary. And it was also a character. The people who handed Jamie Lee the script were thinking about how awesome it would be if the daughter of Psycho starred in their no-budget movie. But Jamie Lee wasn't. When I got Halloween, the, the first thought in my mind wasn't like, ooh, my mother was in Psycho and I'm going to be in this horror film. I was so thrilled to get a job where the word Lori was on every page of the script, literally. I, I, the last thing I thought about was that, oh, my mother was famous for that. To be fair, Jamie Lee also wasn't thinking about Psycho because she'd never seen it. She'd want to see her mom die. 
Also, she just hates horror movies. She seriously hates them, like to the point that when she went to go see Silence of the Lambs, she brought a paper listing all the scenes where a friend warned her in advance she should close her eyes. But Psycho had been a part of her life anyway. I mean, for a while, her mom got so many fan letters from obsessive people that the FBI had to investigate. And after Psycho, Janet Lee never showered again. So when Jamie Lee was little, she only took baths too. Most of all, when Jamie Lee was 12, the producers of The Exorcist called and asked if she would audition for the lead role. They had the exact same publicity idea as Halloween, which means that instead of Linda Blair, it could have been Jamie Lee in that bed, vomiting pea soup. Janet said no. But then, when Jamie Lee turned 15, Janet got a copy of The Exorcist and projected it at her birthday party. Jamie Lee got really scared and she flipped out, so for the rest of high school, people teased her about it by calling her Dimmy, the nickname of the priest. Please, Dimmy. I'm afraid. High school was hard. It sucks being the daughter of two famous, gorgeous celebrities, both perfect tens. Jamie Lee describes her mom as the most beautiful woman she had ever seen. And her father, Tony Curtis, was this black-haired, blue-eyed babe. He had such a hot look that Elvis copied him. Her older sister, Kelly Curtis, was a model. And meanwhile, when Jamie Lee did school plays, she got cast as a boy. She rated her own sex appeal a six. You know, I am linked to my parents and proud to be. They were both super talented people, beautiful beyond measure. And as a teenager, she couldn't help measuring herself against them. Jamie Lee told an interviewer that she got her upper lip and chest from her mom and her lower lip and under eye circles from her dad. She picked her looks apart, seriously nitpicked, and she especially hated her teeth because she thought they were gray and crooked. That's why in Halloween, she smirks with her mouth closed. Growing up, Jamie Lee was insecure about everything. She hated that people paid attention to her because of her parents, and she was even really awkward about being rich. I'm a famous kid, and not that I was a famous young child the way nowadays kids are famous because there's Instagram and all of the social media, but we were definitely children of famous people, and we were photographed a lot as children. When Jamie Lee read Archie comic books, she dreamed of being Betty, the small-town girl. Instead, she knew she was more like pampered Veronica. Jamie Lee had what she called a monster identity crisis. She was the cheerleader who skipped prom, like the scaredy-cat who fought back by getting a license plate that said Dimmy, the absurdist who wrote this in the class yearbook. Weirdness is a virtue that only some can project successfully. My bosoms aren't big, but they're mine. What? This is not how Jamie Lee feels about herself today. Now, she moves through the world with confidence, and that's one of the things I really admire about her, is that she says she likes her looks more now at 59 than she did at 19. When she was young and confused, people said she reminded them of Lauren Bacall, so she just started to dress like Lauren Bacall. But now, Jamie Lee has done the work to become 100% herself. It has been an ongoing discovery about who that is. Part of why it took so long, though, was that even when she tried to become an independent person, an actress in her own right, people only wanted to ask her about her parents. Finally, when one more interviewer asked her if her mother was an influence, she snapped and started babbling, I came out of an egg. Jamie Lee refused to have her parents call in favors with their powerful Hollywood friends. She wanted to prove that she could earn a career on her own, even though she carried around this silver cigarette case that was engraved Tony and Janet. Which is amazing that she still had it, actually, because her parents divorced pretty soon after she was born. Tony Curtis admitted that he slept with Marilyn Monroe on the set of Some Like It Hot while Janet was pregnant with Jamie Lee, which is not cool. But she still carried this lighter around like a lucky totem, which she needed. It is tough to be a teenage actress, especially in the 70s. Think of the parts you're getting offered. Bikini girl number four, sexy waitress, hot nurse. Jamie Lee got a job on Operation Petticoat, a TV spinoff of one of her dad's movies, as a hot nurse. 
It's the battle of the sexes aboard the pink sub with the most unconventional crew in the Navy. Your nurses being women and our men being men, it could create situations inconsistent with normal submarine operations. And she got fired. So when Jamie Lee auditioned to play Laurie Strode in Halloween, she was 19 and already a little jaded. As she headed to meet Deborah Hill, her mom gave her one piece of advice. Be yourself, Jamie. You can't learn to act, but you can learn to lose your inhibitions. Lose your inhibitions. Oh, man. Well, so here she goes to get the role of her life, and we will talk about her audition after the break. Once again, I want to give a thank you to our sponsor, Shudder, who is the absolute hands-down resource you want to use if you are into horror things and you want to get spooky. In fact, a couple of the movies that we're talking about in this episode you can watch right now on Shudder. There's The Fog, which is John Carpenter and Jamie Lee's follow-up immediately after Halloween. You want to watch this one to see everything he tried to do differently, all his different ambitions coming forward. You want to see Jamie Lee do a different type of Scream Queen performance for the director who made her a star. And if you're looking for something else after The Fog, there is Prom Night up there. Jamie Lee, disco dancing, looking amazing, doing a pretty good job disco dancing, honestly, in a film that she has a very love-hate relationship with because she thought it was way too similar to Halloween and she got very embarrassed. But you should check that out. Watch her in full bloom. And also... They have on Shutter right now Black Christmas, another film we talked about this episode. It's kind of a pre-Halloween girls in a house slasher. It is really interesting. It stars Olivia Hussey, who you guys might know as like the most beautiful girl in the world from the Romeo and Juliet movie in the 1960s. This is a must for all horror nerds. You've got to check it out. And once you've watched those, you might be interested to know that Shudder does this awesome thing where they curate their selection into chunks based on a theme. So if you're in the mood for a certain type of horror movie, you can go to like Vengeance is Hers, where they have a whole series of films that are all about women just taking up knives, getting control, being vengeful, being brutal. It is awesome. And there's also a section called A Woman's Touch, which is all horror films directed by women. So you got a lot to watch. I suggest you start now by trying Shudder for free for 14 days. So you're going to go to Shudder.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. That's Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com slash podcast, promo code UNMASKED. And when you watch this stuff, tell me what you think. I want to hear your feedback. All right, now let's get on with the show. We are back and we are at Jamie Lee's audition. It is just her and Deborah Hill in a tiny cheap office in Hollywood. Deborah asked Jamie to do her side of this bedroom phone call scene where Lori talks to her friend Annie. Hello? Why'd you hang up on me? Annie? Was that you? Of course. Why didn't you say anything? You scared me to death. I had my mouth full. Couldn't you hear me? Thought it was an obscene phone call. Now you hear obscene chewing. You're losing it, Lori. Two things. One, Deborah wrote those lines. I bring up Deborah a lot because it's important to me that we shift away from thinking of Halloween as strictly a John Carpenter movie. Deborah wrote the most important dialogue in the script. She wrote pretty much all of the lines for Laurie Strode and Annie the Smart Alec and Linda the Pigtailed Cheerleader. Deborah is why Laurie Strode and her friends feel real, which means Deborah is why Halloween feels real. She was instrumental in creating Laurie and the girls, just the whole vibe of the girls, the way the girls talked. Even Linda's catchphrase. Totally. 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 But Deborah hung out with Jamie Lee a lot. Deborah Hill and I became very close girlfriends. Um, I was 19, she was 30, and um, separate from being a producer and an actress. 
Deborah was actually even younger than that. She was only 27. But Deborah, producing her first movie ever, was already wise enough to know that at that audition, she didn't want her potential scream queen to audition with a scream. Deborah knew that the most important thing was to see if rich celebrity daughter Jamie Lee Curtis could play an ordinary girl, to see if Veronica could play Betty. This was a character who was very complete and clearly wasn't going to dress like Jamie dressed. And her entire wardrobe came from J.C. Penney in about an hour. And we went to J.C. Penney's and spent maybe a hundred and maybe a hundred and twenty dollars on everything. That included socks, shoes, skirts, things that matched. Oh, and that hair was this perm that Jamie Lee got and then sabotaged so that she looked like this frizzy, hopeless mess. That perm destroyed her hair, so afterwards she cut it all off. And that is how she got the crop that she has rocked ever since. Laurie Strode is the most ordinary high school girl in maybe every movie ever. I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about when I say that Halloween teen girl ordinary is kind of bullshit. I mean, Halloween ordinary is a total babe hiding behind nerd glasses. Or Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink who gets bullied for reasons that don't even make any sense. Picture Molly Ringwald in her custom-made, I'm geeky, but I'm kooky, and I'm actually obviously super cool outfits. Now picture Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode is what makes Halloween work, even more than Michael Myers. Laurie balances him. He's a psychotic, nonverbal serial killer who's maybe not even human. She is so ordinary that she makes Halloween feel even scarier. The word that John kept using was vulnerable, which at first Jamie Lee didn't get. She thought vulnerable meant weak, and how could Laurie Strode be weak? She's the only one who lives. That's where I think at 19 I was confused, and I didn't... I didn't want to be weak. Vulnerable is very different than weak. John told Jamie Lee her job was to make the audience fall in love with her, to make us want to protect her. And when Jamie Lee sat and watched Halloween with a real audience, she finally realized why in that scene where she's slowly walking across the street. When that stranger stood up and screamed at Lori not to walk into the murder house. And right at that moment, I understood what John was talking about. All of what I understood, and I was like, I get it. And that's exactly the response he wanted. People talking to the screen, talking to her like she was their little sister. Lori is your little sister, the one that you catch smoking pot while listening to Don't Fear the Reaper, but you don't rat her out because she's clearly not even that good at it. So, you know, there was a beautiful wistfulness to the character that was hardly the kind of material that I was seeing at that time. That there was an emotional life to her, that there were some quiet private moments her just all by herself, her dreaming, her dreaminess about finding a guy. Or at least when she thinks she's having a private moment. Like when Laurie sings to herself as she's walking to school, her back to the camera, getting smaller and smaller and farther and farther away with no idea that Michael Myers is watching. I wish I had you all alone Just the two of us So she did. Jamie Lee was not a natural improviser. When PJ Souls and Nancy Kyes, who played Linda and Annie, would start making up lines, Jamie Lee would get nervous and whisper, are we allowed to be doing this? Those first couple days on set, Jamie Lee was awkward. We already talked about how she thought she was going to get fired, but it really wasn't just anxiety about her first starring movie role. It was her very weird celebrity kid childhood. Here's a quick example that set photographer Kim Gottlieb Walker remembers. I noticed in the first, the first day or two that Jamie seemed to be avoiding me a little bit. And I figured out that it was probably because she came from such a high-profile Hollywood family with Tony Curtis and Janet Lee, And so she was used to avoiding 
people with cameras. But cameras were Kim's job, so she had to win Jamie Lee's trust. So I left my portfolio in her Winnebago so she could see my portraits of Jimi Hendrix and all of the various rock and roll stuff I had done. And starting the next day, she was posing for me at every opportunity. It was fabulous. Kim's photos, which she has put in a book, are fabulous. There's this big shot of Jamie Lee lounging in the grass, giving the camera her best blue steel. On that Halloween set, surrounded by all of these unfamous hippie weirdos, she was beginning to truly be herself. But it was Jamie who was kind of the wildest of the bunch, but you'd never know it. (laughs) Playing the, the shy Laurie Strode. One of the fun facts that people repeat about Halloween a lot is that Laurie Strode was named after one of John's high school girlfriends in Bowling Green, which seems totally possible since John hates inventing names. He says that all of his name ideas are dumb cliches, so he usually just uses people he knows. Not just Michael Myers, but also in his next movie after this, The Fog, there's characters named Tommy Wallace and Nick Castle, and a character named Elizabeth Solly, who was definitely one of John's high school girlfriends. She was the one who played coffee shops with him and Tommy back in Kentucky. I asked Marissa from the Bowling Green Visitors Bureau in episode one if she'd ever met the real Laurie Strode. Well, you know, Laurie Strode, and when it comes to some of these people and Michael Myers, uh, there are uh, uh, there are dozens of people out here in Bowling Green and residents that would say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's so-and-so, or oh, yeah. Um, so who who really knows? Um, I've never met a Laurie Strode here, um, and no one here at the Convention and Visitors Bureau has, but she may be out there, or, or some ancestors may be out there. Inconclusive. So I asked John. What about the real Laurie Strode? Was she anything like... No, it's made up. Just made up. But uh, no, Laurie was just made up character. Oh, I was out here just littering the world with your ass. Okay, because I am a crazy person, I decided to double check. So I spent a few hours online sifting through all the Laurie and Laura and Lauren Strodes to see if I could find one the right age who went to high school in Bowling Green. I found this whole Facebook family tree of Kentucky Strodes, but no Laurie or Lauren or Laura. So as far as I can tell, that fun fact is totally wrong. And I guess maybe I learned a lesson about learning to trust John. To be honest, I think John's favorite female character was PJ Souls' Linda. He wrote the part specifically for her after seeing her in Carrie, and I kind of think he had a crush. But she was dating Dennis Quaid. John's also said that he knew a lot of Linda types in high school, and he thought they were awesome. And you can see that because her relationship in the movie with her boyfriend Bob looks fun. They drink beers, they crack jokes, they have sex. While Michael Myers watches. Oh, and by the way, that was John's first sex scene as a director, and he was super embarrassed about it. You can kind of tell because he keeps the couple under the covers. And also, in fact, even when you see PJ's breasts or Nancy Kai's in her underwear, John's a gentleman about it. He never does that zoom, pan, leer, yowza, perv exploitation stuff. PJ's boobs are basically as matter-of-fact as elbows. But even without the leering camera work, there is a pattern. Buckle in, because here is where we need to talk about sex and Scream Queens and Final Girls and how right after the liberated 60s and 70s, Halloween accidentally screwed up teen girls for a generation. First, the facts. Michael's sister Judith has sex and gets murdered. Linda has sex and she gets strangled with a phone cord. Annie is about to drive off and have sex and she gets stabbed in the car. Lori, our final girl, does not have sex and she lives. Like Scream says, sex is death. Let's listen to Linda's strangling again, because over the phone, Lori can't even tell which is which. She also can't even tell that those gasps are coming from Linda, not Annie. Hello? Uh, 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 Hello? All right, Annie. First I get your famous chewing, now I get your famous squealing. 
People noticed. They thought John and Deborah were on purpose saying, virgins good, girls who have sex bad. But the pattern was really more like a misunderstanding. Like when you play telephone and you whisper, psst, being lonely makes you observant. And the person at the end of the chain yells, don't have sex or you'll die. When Halloween became a huge hit, copycats like Friday the 13th repeated what they thought Halloween's script was saying, don't have sex or you'll die. Like it had deliberately written these slasher rules. Even though Halloween didn't have any rules, and it didn't even want rules, because John's whole point was that bad stuff happens just because. Nobody had a clue that there would be people who are interested in a darker understanding of none of it. It didn't exist. It's fun to intellectualize it, and I'm sure there are feminist classes at... Oberlin College, where they discuss why the virgin survives and the promiscuous girl doesn't. I have taken those college classes in Oklahoma, not Oberlin, and I really liked them. These deep gender readings of slasher films were one of my first exposures to the idea that even fun movies like Halloween were worth really thinking about. I even wrote a paper about how Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a giant dick joke, which I totally stand by. But there are huge problems with this final girl rule, which is why it's important to go back to its Halloween beginnings and be very clear that it was an accident. There is no deeper meaning to that the promiscuous girl gets killed and the virgin uh, survives. You know what? I was a virgin at 17 in high school. A lot of girls are virgins at 17 in high school. When Jamie Lee lost her virginity, she went right home and told her mom, which is a little weird. But what's normal is that even today, the majority of high schoolers, girls and boys, are virgins. But on screen, slasher films got morality, and then that morality got all warped. All these slasher serial killers became kind of like those crazy protesters who hold up signs saying that everyone who sins will burn in hell. Even just teen girls having sex with their boyfriends, which is really screwed up. And then, to make it even ickier, a lot of the later directors were much creepier about staring at the victim's boobs. I personally feel that you would have to do some pretty rigorous intellectual gymnastics to try to argue that slasher films don't offer topless women being tortured as a spectacle. Halloween doesn't torture its girls, but the later slasher films do, and so they tried even harder to make that okay, and then they made their victims even dumber and bitchier and hornier. They stopped being real girls and they started being meat. People started to laugh when they died, so Scary Movie just made that the joke. Like when the killer chases an almost naked Carmen Electra in bouncing slow motion through lawn sprinklers and then stabs out her breast implant. And Scary Movie's final girl, played by Anna Faris, is so virginal that her underwear is an electric fence. No, Bobby, don't. Yeah, scream queens don't always get a lot of respect. But John and Deborah liked Linda and Annie and Lori. They were trying to put real girls in tragic deaths on screen. You know, it's very easy to look at this as a kind of puritanical, you know, the sluts will get punished. But I think that ignores what was going on at the time. You know, this was a generation who grew up with the civil rights movement and women's liberation, as it was called at the time. You know what? They're all just young women trying to figure it out and they're trying to figure it out together. The girls aren't supposed to be divided into good versus bad. They're just three friends figuring out dating and adulthood and sex. Like this scene when Annie is teasing Lori about her crush, a scene which, by the way, Deborah Hill directed. Ben Tramer? I knew it! (laughs) See, you do think about things like that, huh, Lori? (laughs) Shut up. He's cute! You know, that's a really naturalized conversation between women. 
you know, that, that kind of almost faux hostile but still really affectionate tension that's going on in that conversation in the car is perfect. It's perfect. She should be a household name. You know, she should be up there with John Carpenter. Deborah Hill is absolutely a shining light, a patron saint. I talk a lot in my criticism about how female friendship in movies is almost like a dog whistle. Over and over again, I see how people just miss entire female friendship subplots like they don't even register. One person who did that was the director of Friday the 13th, who started his career in softcore porn and then rushed to copy Halloween right away. But he missed the point of all of these scenes that Deborah carefully included to make Lori and Annie and Linda feel like real girls, to make the audience care about them. Instead, he just paid attention to the fact that the girls were hot and some of them showed their boobs, and he made that, not their friendship, the focus. Slasher films didn't have to be like this. Before the Laurie Strode gold rush, the few early slasher final girls, like the survivors of Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, did have sex. In Black Christmas, which came out one year after Roe vs. Wade, the final girl is even pregnant, which adds her boyfriend to the list of suspects. You are not going to abort that baby. Peter, you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. Jess, if you try getting an abortion... I think you better leave. If you try getting an I abortion... I said get out! You're going to be very sorry. John Carpenter liked Black Christmas, by the way, and he asked the director if he was going to make a sequel. The director said no, but if he did, he would have his killer escape from a mental institution and go back to the sorority on Halloween. I'm not making any accusations, I'm just dropping some facts. But the main fact is that John Carpenter's Halloween was a much, much, much bigger hit than Black Christmas, so no matter where John got his extra piece of inspiration, he inspired everyone else. Two last quick asides. Bob also has sex and dies, but for whatever reason, we as a society focus on female sexuality and female victims, especially on the news, especially when the female victims are young and white, while in reality, men are three and a half more times likely to be murdered. Still, you don't really hear the phrase scream king or final boy, though a few of them do exist in slashers that are conscientiously trying to make an intellectual point. And there's almost something subversive or experimental with the idea of the the final boy. Um, And I think that's because the final, you know, boys are considered the the norm. They're they're considered the status quo. And my final point on the subject. If you watch all of the Halloween sequels, the most common victim is not a girl who has sex. It's a guy with a car. Seriously. Speed kills! When Halloween wrapped, Jamie Lee went over to Nick Castle, who played Michael Myers, and she gave him a huge friendly kiss. She'd finished her first film, and she had proven herself. Soon after, Halloween became a big hit, so surely Hollywood would know that Jamie Lee Curtis deserved to be taken seriously as an actress. She even got her teeth fixed. But it didn't work out that way. I got no work whatsoever. And the following spring, uh, the only work I got was I got an episode of Love Boat, where I played my mother, Janet Lee's daughter, who was getting married. And I did an episode of Charlie's Angels, where I played Cheryl Ladd's best friend, who was a professional golfer. That's the work I got after Halloween. Jamie Lee sent her agents a fake suicide note with a picture of herself hanging by a dog leash. And underneath it, she listed all the reasons that casting agents told her she couldn't get hired. Too young, too old, too tall, too short. Her voice was too low. You're not pretty enough, or you're pretty, or you're whatever. Oh, everything's (laughs) going to be a joke with me. I mean, Jesus, I mean, come on. I'm, I, I will crack jokes. Jamie Lee has said that John was the first director she met who saw past her looks, her exterior, and saw the real person that she was. 
So after Jamie Lee went six months without working, John gave her the Elizabeth Solly part in his next horror film, The Fog. Deborah produced that too, and John's new wife, Adrian Barbeau, stars. And in what I think is the entire Halloween team's middle finger to that whole final girls don't have sex thing, in her very first scene, Jamie Lee's character gets picked up by a trucker and she immediately bones him. Now that is a bold way for Hollywood to know that Jamie Lee Curtis is not the virgin Laurie Strode. Jamie Lee finally started to get some parts, but only in other horror films that stuck by the no sex thing. There's Terror Train, where she pranks this medical student into thinking he's in bed with her when he's really in bed with a corpse. He then turns into a mass traumatized killer and stabs a bunch of kids on a train. There's Prom Night, where Jamie Lee disco dances while her classmates get murdered by another mass traumatized killer. There was an Australian thriller named Road Games, and then finally there was Halloween 2, which was Jamie Lee's sixth horror film in three years. And like her mom, horror movies were making Jamie Lee incredibly famous. She was called the Queen of Chills, the Queen of the Creepies, the Virgin Queen of the Shivers. She called herself the Queen of Crud. Two years after Halloween, she was hosting Saturday Night Live. Here's her opening monologue. Well, I know a lot of people out there have seen me in Halloween and the fog. And... Thank you. And they're all expecting me to do one thing. Well, this is for you. Awesome. But she had to figure out a way to get out of horror films before, like her mom, she got typecast. Only getting out wasn't really something she could control. When you're a young actor, you have no choice. The choice you have is to say no. I won't audition for that movie because it's a horror movie and I don't believe in horror movies. Whatever, I don't care. I also knew that there was a limit to it. And if I didn't get out at that point that I wouldn't get work in other areas. Uh, I knew that I needed to break free from it because clearly that was all the work I was going to get. Was there a time in that stretch where you were wishing you hadn't been Laurie Strode? Never, 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 ever, ever, never. Jamie Lee Curtis might be the luckiest scream queen ever. It's really hard to think of anyone else who made that many horror films and went on to survive in Hollywood for decades. I think what made her special is that Jamie Lee's characters always lived. She was never the victim, or as she put it, I was never in the Swamp Thing 8 getting fucked by a beast from the swamp. She made six exploitation films and didn't get exploited, in part because of this sexy girl's die trope that she accidentally started. Because people didn't think of the girl who played Laurie Strode as sexy, so no other horror films even asked her to take her top off. So, it, the irony, of course, is that in all those earlier films, I was not exploited for my physical looks at all. So, she kept living. Then, a picture of Jamie Lee surfaced in a sexy outfit, and suddenly her agent's phone started to ring like crazy, with people saying, Boy, oh boy, the girl's got tits. She got her first three non-horror jobs, all quote-unquote serious dramas. She played a murdered Playboy playmate. Then she played a lovelorn woman who had a lot of on-camera sex. And then she played a prostitute. She was asked to take her top off for all three. Lucy breasts. I want to see Jamie Lee's breasts. When do yes. we see Jamie yes. Lee's breasts? Breasts? Not until Trading Places in 83. Jamie Lee was always the virgin in horror movies. She never showed her tits until she went legit. In order to be legitimate, I'm actually have get the opportunity to show off my natural attributes. But for those movies, for me to go topless was the requirement of that role, which I accepted at that time. 
not because I wanted to, but because that was the requirement of the job. And if I wanted that job, that was what I had to do. So I did it. When Jamie Lee Curtis went legits, she got a new nickname, The Body. Bye-bye, Laurie Strode. Except Jamie Lee Curtis can't say goodbye to Laurie Strode. She's tried to. I mean, she only reluctantly made Halloween 2. I felt like I owed the original audience of those movies uh, to have the same girl playing Laurie Strode. Um, I owed John and Deborah, even though John did not direct it. Um, I felt like I owed him and Deborah very much, uh, you know, to be that same girl. And then I knew after that movie that I couldn't do it anymore. And I didn't for a very long time. After that, Jamie Lee quit Halloween very publicly, and she swore that she would never be a Scream Queen again. So the franchise unceremoniously killed off Laurie Strode in a car wreck and then started to make movies about her daughter. Laurie Strode stayed dead until Halloween H2O when Jamie Lee brought her back as this alcoholic school principal who's hiding from Michael in disguise under the name Miss Tate. And then she killed her off again in Halloween Resurrection. But Laurie Strode is alive again in the newest Halloween, which opens this month. As a person, like, who is she now in 2018? Okay, well, so she's not a real person. <laughs> just, so, just so you know. What? No, but Santa, yes. don't tell me. I know. She's not real. She's a fake person. She was written on a piece of paper by other people. Who we meet 40 years later is a woman who has spent her entire adult life, because she was 17 when this happened. So her entire adult life has been spent trying to convince other people that Michael Myers was going to come back. It's heartbreaking, because she had no life. It's really a prison that she's in. But meanwhile, Jamie Lee no longer thinks of her famous kid childhood and her gorgeous parents as a kind of prison. She's gone from ducking questions about her and her mom and Psycho to celebrating her family's heritage. In her TV show called, of course, Scream Queens, Jamie Lee even parodied her mom's famous shower scene. I saw that movie 50 times. And in Halloween H2O, she cast Janet Lee as a secretary who makes jokes about the girl's shower drain being clogged and drives the exact same 1957 Ford as Marion Crane and shares this surprisingly sweet scene where after asking Lori, I mean, Miss Tate, if I could be maternal for a moment, the great scream queen Janet Lee gives Lori Strode a pep talk about overcoming tragedy. And then as she walks away, if you listen closely, you can hear a snatch of the psycho theme song. Oh, Miss Tate, uh... Happy Halloween. The whole mythology about Michael, and they say it over and over and over in the film, why doesn't he die? Why does he keep coming back? Why can't we kill him off? That's the question we usually talk about. Why can't Michael die? But there's never going to be a good answer to that. You know, is he human? Is he the devil? Is he an evil Irish spirit? We don't know, and we will never know. But he's not the only immortal. That's... A little ironic, but the same actually applies to Laurie. I mean, to me, the most important thing about Jamie Lee Curtis in the Halloween films is that she keeps coming back. Michael keeps coming back, but so does Laurie. She dies so many times, and because one of the most joyful things about Slasher is that it doesn't really care about overarching narratives. So forget asking why Michael can't die. The better question is why can't Laurie Strode die? And the answer, I think, is because of us. Because the most important of Halloween isn't Michael's mask or his knife. 
It's how much we love her. I've had myriad careers, and I've raised two kids, and I've been married a long time, and, and yet, you know, Laurie Strode will always be this beautiful girl that I will be known for and known as. Now that Jamie Lee isn't such an uncertain teenager, when she watches Halloween, she sees how beautiful she really was. And even so, she still also sees the movie's flaws. Like, why does Laurie throw the knife away after stabbing Michael? And also, if you pay attention to this scene where Laurie wanders home after spotting Michael in the bushes... <laughs> instead of looking scared, she accidentally almost laughs. And then she quickly covers up her smile and those teeth that she still didn't want people to see. Excuse me, Laurie. Oh, Mr. Brackett, I'm sorry, Mr. Brackett. Oh, I didn't mean to startle you. That's oh, all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? They are. Many good scares. And many, many, many more bad scares. Because in the next episode of Halloween Unmasked, we're going to take a closer look at all of those Halloween copycats and the slasher trend that sprung up in the wake of Michael Myers. And then we'll look at how the Halloween franchise itself mutated in response to these copycats, especially after Nev Campbell made fun of bad slasher movies in Scream. She's not entirely wrong, but I'll let Laurie Strode have the last word. I'm going to watch the rest of the movie. Fair enough. Our slasher movie marathon starts in episode 5. Till then. Halloween Unmasked is a co-production of The Ringer and Neon Hum Media. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson, and our producers are Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Mack, and Greta Weber. Production assistance from Kaya McMullen and Karen Navatia. And additional support and a special thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. And an ultra-special thanks to you creeps for listening to Halloween Unmasked. <laughs>